I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped upon these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Let there be hate. Welcome to the Two Minute Hate, boys and girls, haters of all genders, traditional and novel. Um, I am Evan Barrett, broadcasting to you live from the Raider Cove for this week's edition of the Two Minute Hate. Today's episode is going to be mostly uh, a sad reflection on Palestine and... uh, why I sort of am an atheist about that conflict and feel very paralyzed by it and how that Syria is increasingly coming to resemble it, and that breaks my heart. But first, I just want to go over a few quick things I thought were interesting this week. Um, The first thing, you know, someone pointed out to me that this Wade in the Water song, it's like a black spiritual, which, you know, I love gospel music, I consider myself Christian. I like uh, I like old Christian music. I don't like Christian rock, but you know I like uh, sort of like the hymns you'll find in church, and I like gospel, and so I like the music. There's some question of whether it's appropriate to use that sort of song to like sample or whatever. I think I just throw up my hands to such things. I don't know how to. You know, given the tremendous and wonderful impact of black culture on all of American culture, I don't know how to even begin to think about questions of appropriation because I don't think there's anything I have or do in my speech, in my musical taste, in my opinions on things. You know, there's nothing I have that doesn't have non-European influences in it, but particularly black influences, black American influences. And so I, you know, I think I'm sympathetic to the idea that when you exist as a minority in a culture, things you create that have value are inevitably taken, or even as you create them, they are sort of, you know, used by actors within the majority to profit but i'm not i'm not sure that i think that's something that any of us can responsibly opt out of because that sort of implies that culture is these you know distinct blocks that just brush up against each other as opposed to you know the original phrase about america of melting pot you know if you have a melting pot once ingredients are in the pot, you can't re-separate them. And I think that's more like what we're looking at, which gets me to one of the things I wanted to talk about today, which was Post Malone. Post Malone has a new album, uh, Beer Bongs and Bentleys. And as the title implies, it's sort of like immature bro rap. Though I think there's some argument whether it's functionally different in its lyrical style from a lot of other rap. I mean, one of the important differences is that Post Malone is white. And I think another thing that's interesting about Post Malone is that I, for a long time, didn't know he was white, just based on his voice. I think a lot of people didn't know he was white. I know in his early appearances and one of his early songs... Like, White Iverson was his most famous first song, and I wasn't paying attention to him at that point. 
I started paying attention to him with congratulations. And then when I saw that White Iverson was another single, I was like, oh, Post Malone's white. So probably a lot of people know he's white if they've been on board from the beginning. But I think if you got in later, you may not know. And, you know, even when you look at him, he's a very, like, strikingly ugly and ridiculous-looking person. Uh, But his ethnicity is not clear. You know, it's not... It's not clear just upon looking at him that he's as boringly white as he ends up being. It is clear he's not black. Um, so, you know, whatever whatever issue of sort of appropriating black music remains. But I think the thing I want to challenge is that Post has pissed a lot of people off for a number of reasons. One is that, like, He's sort of, like, relatively suburban and white, and he adopts a lot of the language that is in the hip-hop vernacular, like, you know, bitches and whatever. And also, he said some weird things about rap. Like, he said, um... He did some interview where he basically said, like, hip-hop isn't that interesting. Hip-hop is fun. And that's why I love it. And, um... You know, if you want good lyrics, go listen to Bob Dylan. If you want to have fun, listen to hip-hop. And I think a lot of people who take hip-hop seriously were offended by that. And I take hip-hop quite seriously. And I think he's he's technically wrong, in my opinion. But if you want to be charitable, you, you sort of know what he means. Like, I think that hip-hop contains just as much thematic subtlety and interest in its lyrics as any other type of pop music. It's just that the songs that sort of come to the top tend to not be... Like, I was trying to even think to myself, like, what's the last top 40 pop song that was really... had some interesting themes in the lyrics? It was probably a Drake song, but Drake is an artist who has lots of interesting lyrics that tackle things that aren't typically tackled in hip-hop, and those songs tend to not be his most popular songs. His songs that are simpler or just about partying or whatever uh, tend to be more popular. But Nice For What is currently, like, number two, and that's sort of, like, an interesting song about, you know, there's elements of it from the female perspective, and uh, I guess, like, women hustling in the way that men do has been a theme in hip-hop for a while now, but, you know, it's it's still, like, relatively novel in top ten pop songs. But, uh... So I think he's he's wrong that... You know, basically, it's like, if you delve into top 40 country or top 40 rock or top 40 electronic music or top 40 hip-hop, most of the songs will either be about romance, drugs, or some, like, nebulous form of romance or partying that you you don't even really know what it's about, but, like, you know, the roof is on fire and yada, yada, yada. And I think that, you know, Post Malone talks a lot about Bob Dylan, but, like, the 60s were an incredibly uh, unique time, and I think the fact that there was such political music that was popular in the 60s is not, like, a normal standard. So, like, hip-hop being, quote-unquote, just fun, in Post Malone's words, uh, is more just it being similar to pop music historically in the United States than there being anything unique about hip-hop. But it was a bad look, because here's this white artist interloper succeeding in this genre where perhaps he's... uh, you know, has sort of unearned his his spot or whatever, and then he's sort of demeaning the art form. Though, you know, he later tried to clarify his comments, whatever, whatever. And he certainly would say he loves hip-hop. Um, his music is catchy. I don't like it that much. But I think there's a weird thing going on where the sort of, like, thinker class, like the types of people who review music online... They really don't like Post Malone. Um, And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, But they have sort of are flummoxed with explanations of why he's so popular. And I think very lazily they've said, 
oh, it's because he's white. It's because there's still a big group of people in America that find, uh, like, black music unpalatable because they feel a certain way about black people, and Post Malone allows them to engage with hip-hop in a way that's non-threatening to them. I think that this is a lazy and mistaken thing. I mean, first of all, as a person who doesn't even like Post Malone, I do think the music is catchy. I also think he's weird and compelling because uh, he's just like an ugly weirdo and he has very, like, esoteric opinions about music and everything, really. So, like, I understand why he's compelling. But the thing, that, the, the argument they've sort of forwarded in some of these articles is like, oh, like... Post Malone has 6 million streams and Ty Dolla Sign has 4 million. Wonder what that's about, question mark. And, like, it's very obvious what they're saying, but I think what bothers me about this, because, like, if you just want to say Post Malone is overrated, I'd probably say, okay, yeah, that's true. And if you wanted to say some of the reason that Post Malone is so uniquely successful is that he's white, uh... Or at, the, at least, if you want to make it slightly more complex, that he's not from, uh, he's not from a community or a culture that's alienating to a lot of white people, i.e., uh, the urban poor or whatever, um, which is where a lot of hip hop music comes from. I would even accept that. I think what bothers me is that. And one of the pieces I'm referring to, I don't know if I said this already, is Lindsay Zolad's at The Ringer. So you can go read that and see what she says. One of the things that bothers me is that white writers uh, at Pitchfork or at The Ringer or wherever online have this tendency of talking about rap and hip-hop as if it is the... It's almost as if they're writing like they are super nerdy jazz heads like that they have penetrated this black music that is produced by black artists and consumed by black fans and then they are also a student of it as opposed to what it's almost always actually been which is a little bit more complicated which is like the nba or something it's like uh, a predominantly black industry is producing an entertainment product of profound value that is consumed by a wide cross-section of the society, which is diverse but mostly white. So, like, the thing that's confusing about, you know, go to a Drake concert, look around, see what, uh, you know, sort of demographic layout you see, go to a Kanye concert. I, you know, there are differences. Like, you know, the demographics of a Migo show might be different than the demographics of a Drake show. But I think the point I'm trying to make is they're talking about Post Malone like by virtue of being white, he has access to the white marketplace or something. When, like, hip-hop is successful in that marketplace. Um... And has been since, I don't know, like the mid-90s, I think, is when you could say hip-hop successfully started to translate to being, like, one of the accepted forms of pop music in America. And the only reason this is relevant is I just think it's not... I, I'm not trying to defend Post Malone or even defend people who might theoretically exist who are you know, who may exist, I don't know, like young people who are uncomfortable with Migos on some grounds that's sort of like racist, but they're comfortable with Post Malone. Those people may very well exist, but I think we would be better under, we would be better served to understand hip hop, uh, say the way we understand the NBA. Like the NBA, the vast majority of the talent in the NBA is black athletes from the United States. Uh, the league itself is diverse, but mostly white, as is the music industry. The fan base is diverse, but mostly white, and that's different in different cities. So this is sort of like an example of 
black culture being so uh, successfully and translatably good as an aesthetic product that it has wide popularity across the society. And I think that's the thing that is unacknowledged in these articles. Like, they want hip-hop to be a marginal concern that the mainstream doesn't understand, but that they understand because they're an interesting blogger. But the point is, hip-hop crossed that Rubicon a long time ago. It's a celebrated art form in America, as it should be. And I think that context needs to go along with any sort of uh, like weird race-based analysis of relative success because it is just the case that I, I really believe it's the case that racist people like hip-hop because it's too ubiquitous and too good to resist. Like, I'm trying to think in my own life. Like, there are, there are almost certainly parts of America where, you know, some town where the average person is racist and they listen to country music and if you play hip-hop, uh, maybe people get mad at you. But even fucking dumb country has absorbed the hip-hop vernacular and people know what it is. And, like, I feel like I grew up with some people who I might casually describe as racist you know, they're not KKK racist, but they believe things that I think are bad. They they buy into racial stereotypes more than they should. And all the songs they have are hip-hop and rap. Uh, so, like, I guess what I'm saying is there appears to be a racist embrace of black music simply because the music is either self-evidently good or it's ubiquitous or whatever. So again, like, this is just, I think this narrative about Post is lazy and is mainly about the writer's, the writer's, like, bullshit self-image that, like, they're Jane Goodall and they understand this subculture of hip-hop that other white people don't get. And it's like, no, you're, you like hip-hop because you're an average white person, and the average white person likes hip-hop. In any event, I've talked too long about a fairly silly and unconsequential topic, but it relates to another thing I wanted to touch on, which is that Spotify has now said that they are going to remove a number of artists who are guilty of or thought to be guilty of a variety of crimes from their playlist. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you won't be able to search for the artist. So, like, R. Kelly. I'm pretty sure I understand this. It's like R. Kelly's catalog will remain on Spotify, and you can look it up and play it. But if you select a, a Spotify playlist, like a shuffle playlist where you're like, I want to listen to R&B from the 90s or the 2000s, they will not cycle in R. Kelly to that playlist. And it's actually like a very economically interesting move because there's some artists who get most of their streaming money because they occur, because they come up in playlists. And, you know, especially older artists like R. Kelly or artists who've been around for a long time, that may be the case with him because he, he had hits in so many decades that if you're just choosing a year or a group of years, you know, his songs would come up. And then there's other artists who apparently are not worked into playlists a lot, but that, you know, people seek them out individually. And so it would be less significant for them. But that's, you know, so that's an interesting technical question. Um, but the thing I want to get into that's interesting. So like some of the artists that have been banned are already bringing suit against Spotify, and one of the things they're arguing is, here's a list of a hundred other people who have committed the same crime uh, that our client has. What are you doing with their music? And then there's even more interesting things like, there are a couple record label executives who have been found guilty uh, recently of sexual impropriety, and in some cases abuse. It's like, And so Spotify right now has been focused on the artists, but it would be interesting if they were compelled to uh, take into account the behavior of people on the production and distribution side. Um, 
And I think, to me, the fact that they're even having these conversations about, like, where exactly is the line? Are you only going to punish artists or could you punish their labels or, you know, companies they work with? I think this just proves that this isn't what we want companies to do. Like, we're in this very weird time where, like, I can remember, it's, cha- it's completely reversed in my lifetime. There was a time when I was young and social media didn't exist, where because I was a Unitarian Universalist, you would sometimes hear about pressure campaigns against corporations to be like, you shouldn't work in this place or you shouldn't produce your products in this country because it's uh, human rights you know, laws are non-existent or whatever. Um, and it seemed like none of those campaigns were effective. And I think you know, social media and our general, like, wokeness have gone hand in hand. And it seems like, you know, becoming a more progressive society and having these tools where you can call people out in public uh, have both added to the effectiveness of those sort of campaigns. But I think we're we're approaching a point, and it's going to get worse, where, like, the social expectations placed on companies of how they're going to handle this stuff are so onerous and cumbersome that either there's going to be a pushback or they're just going to persist in this incredibly fickle and unsatisfying way. I mean, this is how I feel about Facebook and Twitter's rules and YouTube as well. Like a lot of what they do in terms of flagging content is defer to the community of users. So like on Facebook, for example, you know, when working on serious stuff, sometimes somebody would post like a graphic image of uh, a torture victim or somebody, you know, a a bombing site or something. And almost inevitably, you know, pro-Syrian government trolls would report it as offensive and it'd get taken down. And it wasn't getting taken down because it bothered people, but just because there was a very motivated community And the same thing would happen the other way, you know, sort of Syrian revolutionary advocates flagging things that didn't actually violate Facebook's uh, user conduct sort of outline, but were just, they were flagging it because they didn't like it. And the same thing has happened on Twitter and the same thing has happened on YouTube. And I think users in those communities are aware, even though these companies insist they're going to get better at it and are going to have algorithms that predict hate speech before it's even posted, as Mark Zuckerberg claimed odiously. But the experience so far of asking these companies to do this, I think you can fairly say has been unsuccessful from everyone's perspective. If you're a person who wants companies to prevent hate speech from appearing, they haven't even been effective on those grounds. Um... But with this Spotify thing, it's like so, it's so strange to me. Like, there are musicians I love who I detest as human beings. And I think that part of their artistry is related to the fact, like to me, like the fact that Mick Jagger, and maybe he even does, but like, I don't know. But like the fact that Mick Jagger doesn't have, like, a sexual assault charge out against him is just an accident of history. Like, he has certainly done enough to warrant it. He's been a rich, insane sex maniac for uh, 50 years. Like, if there aren't suits out against him, it's just because the culture was so backward at the height of his power that, uh you know, doubtless the people he's... I guess what I'm doing right now is defamation. I shouldn't... I don't know anything about Mick Jagger. What I'm saying is there's all these people in the world of entertainment that I just assume are bad on, like, a personal level. Um, But that doesn't make me not want to listen to their music. And it doesn't make me want Spotify to curate... Like, I love R. Kelly's music, and my hope for R. Kelly is that He's found guilty of crimes. He has to pay or otherwise make recompense to his victims. And if society deems it appropriate or, you know, a jury of his peers, he does time. I don't want it to be harder for me to listen to his music. I don't understand who that benefits. Um, 
it's just weird to me that this is something we would want. And the companies are doing it because they think we want it, or they at least think people with money want it. They think having a socially responsible brand is important. Um, you know, another example of this would be sort of like how personally and emotionally the Starbucks guy uh, took this instance of the the two young black men having the cops called on them by the employee. Like, I think that it is good that he apologized to them and it is potentially good that an issue be dealt with in that store. I don't know that I see a lot of social benefit in the CEO crying on TV and hiring these phony firms to do diversity training, which isn't a thing that works according to anyone who studies it. So like, I don't know, there's, I guess what I'm saying is like, corporations are liars who are incentivized to do what will make us spend the most money with them. If they have made the determination that there are easy, inexpensive ways for them to trick us into thinking they're an ally in the fight against racism or misogyny, not only are the measures they take not going to be effective in promoting social progress, but we shouldn't ever trust their motives. Like, that's not, you know, this is a determination made by branding experts, um, and it's just lame, and it's stupid, and I don't, I don't want to know the moral character of companies I deal with. I want them to provide me with a product of value, which could include R. Kelly's music. Let me make my fucking moral determination. Uh, which relates to another thing I want to talk about, which is uh, the Supreme Court just legalized sports gambling. So now states, there's like two states, I think, uh, New Jersey and Mississippi maybe, where sports gambling had already been preemptively legalized so they can begin. The rest of the states will have to sort of decide what they want to do with the issue. Um, and this is just what I what this made me think of. I sports bet and have sports bet on these like dodgy foreign sites in the past, which is like pseudo illegal. So on the one hand, I'm happy that it's legalized. On the other hand, I sort of feel like I'm a person... I, like, my relationship with gambling is almost like I'm sitting here being a person who knows they could have been a heroin addict, but never knew a heroin dealer, and, you know, only did it a couple times in my life and can't get it. And then they just announced they're going to sell heroin at uh, Whole Foods, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if this is good for me. So, like, just as a personally... As a person who is attracted to gambling, the idea that it will be easier to do makes me nervous for my own financial health. But that's not society's problem. But I think uh, here's a thing that's interesting that's happening. On a number of issues, I think gambling, drugs, and sexual identity, our state, the American federal government, is abandoning the idea that it should be a moral actor. Like, uh, like, we all sort of know that gambling is bad. And we all sort of know that, you know, smoking weed every day might not be the best thing for a person's life. But it's basically the state saying, like, if your actions don't directly victimize another person, even if they make us think you're a suboptimal human being, like, it's not our job to stop adults from engaging in things that may be self-destructive or whatever. So, like, we're not going to moralize about smoking pot. And I think we're even moving to a place where it's going to be like that about all drugs. It's going to be a less judgmental place and probably, hopefully, in my view, a place where a lot of drug crime is, is decriminalized. Um, and I think that's interesting because it's interesting for a couple reasons. I mean, I think it's positive in the sense that uh, the state has a number of practical jobs to do, providing services. It's not particularly good at those, but at the very least, we should allow it to focus on those rather than sort of like also being our priest or whatever. On the other hand, the state has subsumed a lot of civil society 
human beings do long for moral order, I think. And it's a time where things that traditionally provide moral order, namely the family and a religious community, are more broken and more absent than ever before. So I don't have a problem. I'm not saying I want the state to take the place of the church and the family. I don't believe that at all. And in fact, I think believing that is part of what's wrong with the sort of like liberal worldview. But I do think we need to think about as human beings, if the state is going to abandon certain moral narratives and we don't have other institutions in our lives that provide that, we may want to find them because we may find that, you know, things are worse when we don't have them. I also think there are other areas where the state isn't moving more into morality, but there is pressure for the state to do so. Like, for example, like hate speech laws. Like, there's more support for anti-hate speech laws now than ever before. And I would say that's an example of where in this sort of, like, woke social justice space, people actually do want the state to have a moral position as opposed to, like, a, you know, a legal approach that's just effective or whatever. Um, so that's, that's just interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what I think about it, but um, I, I'm quite comfortable with the state moving away from, from moral positions on things, you know, besides the morals that are implied by the Constitution, which mainly have to do with not objective morality, but how our state is obligated to treat its citizens. Uh, you know, so that maybe, maybe I'm splitting hairs, but I think like a, a non-moralist approach to drugs and sexuality and gambling and stuff like that is positive. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention before going into the Syria-Palestine thing is the president said today or yesterday or a couple days ago, like, um, he was asked a question about MS-13, but also appeared to be just talking about immigrants in general. And he called them like subhuman or something. And, you know, it's something he said about MS-13 a lot, but he did it in his characteristically lazy and confusing way where... It would be very easy to interpret it as he was calling all immigrants subhuman. I don't even want to talk about that. I mean, you shouldn't call anyone that. I mean, the problem with the super predator comment was that it was painting young, poor black people who were up against a number of uh, incredibly challenging, you know, socioeconomic barriers to having a productive life in society, and it was assigning them sole responsibility for being involved in crime. And look, I, the law needs to view people as responsible for their actions, particularly if they're adults, but these people explicitly were not adults, and the problem with the comment was, I think we can understand it in retrospect as an effort to let ourselves off the hook. It's like, because you think to yourself, I think it's very natural as a human to say, well, if a 14-year-old has murdered people, there must be something profoundly wrong with the circumstances that 14-year-old found themselves in. Because it's not a totally natural thing for a 14-year-old born in, you know, 1988 to do in America. Um, natural is a loaded word there, but you, you know what I mean. And the super predator thing was sort of like, no, 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 society, we're off the hook. We didn't do this. It's that there's this, uh, you know, subgroup of really, really bad people, and all you can do is lock them up. There's nothing about uh, larger sort of, you know, there's nothing about the context in which these people become violent that is interesting. It's just that they are super predators. So, like, that's wrong on two levels. One, it's unfair to the subject and sort of denies them humanity. But it's also, I think, disastrous from a policy point of view because it it implies that there's nothing you could do to prevent such people developing. They just exist and you just have to identify them and lock them up. And I think that's not true. Um, 
So this is similar to that, and I think it's similarly like, you know, I have no problem with strict laws about deporting gang members or even trying to make sure that gang members never get in in the first place. But I actually am uncomfortable calling gang members less than human. I mean, you know, Mexico is an incredibly corrupt state. In a lot of these places, you either are like sort of affiliated with the cartel that has a relationship with the army or the cartel that has a relationship with the police uh, opting out of that criminal economy entirely is very difficult. Like, it's just not... And again, you can arrest these people when they commit crimes. You can hold them accountable for their actions. But it's not, you know, there's no... There are no bloodthirsty Mexicans. Uh, it's just not a thing. So, like, it's it's bad language. It's bad language to talk about criminals, and it's especially bad language if you think he's talking about broader people. But I, di- I did just want... I got interested and hung up rhetorically on this idea of inhuman or less than human for people who show no compassion and are violent. I think that... Look, I'm pro-human. I like humans. That's why I'm sort of opposed to abortion. That's why I want to get on other planets. That's why I think people should have lots of kids. Like, I think people are a net good, no matter what resources you have available for them. Uh, You know, infinitely creative, infinitely uh, determined to overcome any obstacle or calamity that befalls them, at least as a group, you know, not every individual. But... I also think I try to be realistic about myself and humans. And it's always weird to me when a group of people displays sort of like selfishly violent behavior and people say that's inhuman. Like what could be more human? To me, what's inhuman is like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or, you know, sitting at the counter in Alabama calmly while white people scream abuse at you because you're not supposed to be sitting there. That's exceptional in a way that makes me think those people have transcended their humanity. People who are violent or hurt other people, that's human. Um, I understand that there's value in, like, aspirational language. Like, the things we like best about ourselves, supposedly, are our compassion and decency, and so that's what we're trying to do when we call the violently selfish or selfishly violent inhuman, but it just seems like a laughable error. Like, I don't know, it's sort of, it's like darkly ironic to me, and I don't think, I don't know, people can say whatever they want, I'm not actually like starting a movement to change this, I'm just saying it is the place my brain goes, and so I assume it's the same for millions of other people, whenever somebody says, this person did this, it's inhuman, is I'm just sort of like, well, you know, no. Like, and it's almost like, how many people, how many governments, how many opposing armies, how many criminals do we call inhuman in the course of a year in our public discourse? It would appear the majority of humans are inhuman, uh, which doesn't really, you know, seems to have implications that negate the statement itself. So, I don't know, it always strikes me as, like, tragically comic, to use that particular descriptor. Uh, But, you know, transition here, speaking of man's inhumanity to man, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Palestine and what happened in Gaza, Um, and the lives lost. I think, first of all, I should say that Ian and I, and I don't want to speak for him, but I feel that I was a little glib about the potential consequences of the embassy move, and this, these deaths we've seen are not merely a reaction to that. You know, it's the anniversary of the Nakba, and um, I think, you know, in some ways this protest is building upon protests from a few months ago where people were also shot at the fence. But, you know, I I feel like we were somewhat dismissive of the possibility of catastrophic violence. 
And the reason I felt that way and sort of still feel that way is that like, and I think we've seen this, is that there are things that will happen where there will be opportunities for uh, the Palestinians to demonstrate or march or show their, uh, you know, in some way express their outrage at this ongoing tragedy and the Israelis may or may not in each of those instances be provoked or they feel compelled into doing something that ends up in the loss of life. And that is not something to joke about or take unseriously. I think it's just more that what has changed since the intifadas is that because of the current security situation and the fact that Gaza is on lockdown and the West Bank is its own sort of complex situation that's frozen in a number of ways. And the fact that all the Arab states have resigned themselves to the state of Israel. I just think the potential for long, protracted violence uh, resembling the intifadas, nevertheless, you know, to say nothing of, of the wars we saw after the foundation of Israel throughout the 20th century. I think I thought that was impossible, and I still think that, but that does not mean that there's any cap on the loss of life we're going to see from uh, the sort of things we've seen this week. And I want to say, I, I'm i going to say certain things about what I think is happening, and I think there's going to be an instinct to think I'm being unfair to Palestinians in Gaza, but I want to be very clear, like, I think that there have been a number of instances where the explicit or implicit goal of Palestinian behavior has been to get Israel to kill Palestinians or their allies to win a sort of like PR victory. But, 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 it's incredibly important to say I do not think that's an illegitimate tactic, especially when you're in the position the Palestinians are in where, like, real military victories or whatever are not possible. Um, and when I say legitimate, I don't mean that I think Hamas is legitimate. I don't mean that I think telling protesters there's a hole in the fence, we can go take over a part of Israel is legitimate. I just mean there are many instances historically where a group has no chance in a traditional military sense to get to win what they need to win uh and so they use other means that i associate with sort of any asymmetric conflict and you know even nonviolent movements uh use this sort of thing like i think that the civil rights movement uh intentionally provoked Maybe provoked is a loaded word. I don't even mean provoked, because that assigns, like, blame. The Freedom Riders in the South and, and other parts of the Civil Rights Movement, they knew or anticipated that cops like Bull Connor were going to react violently to their peaceful demonstrations. And I think they also knew that if that were to happen, that could be good for them as long as they get pictures and stories out that show the sort of disproportionate force and show them being victimized by the, you know, the people that they say are victimizing them. So it's, it can be a powerful and legitimate tool. I think it is incredibly tragic and heartbreaking that a similar logic has taken hold so deeply in Palestine, which I think is something like you know, the deals that were offered or are going to be offered are not acceptable by a metric of Palestinian self-determination. We don't have enough allies in the international community to effectively pressure Israel yet. And so a very important part of our strategy is going to be demonstrating the extent to which Israel abuses us on the international stage, uh, which includes sort of our participating in 
escalating the costs of any confrontation. And that can mean Hamas telling people to go on their roofs during Israeli shelling so that the civilian casualty number goes up. It's the same as Hamas putting their missiles in schools and hospitals so that those things get bombed. And it's the same as uh, rushing a border fence just weeks after the same thing happened and people were shot and killed, knowing that there's going to be a casualty number and knowing that that's going to be a hard thing for Israel to justify. I think it is crucial to understand that this is a global failure. I know that there are conservatives who like to say, you know, Palestine, it's a cult of death. That has to do with Hamas. That has to do with Islam. Like, they love martyring themselves, blah, blah, blah. I don't buy into any of that. I think part of the reason this is happening is the complete failure of normal international processes to get anything for the Palestinian people. Like, if we want them to believe in more productive politics, I mean, you have to look at the history of the peace process and ask yourself, why would they? I mean, they rightly judge the Americans as traditionally, I think this is changing, and I'm not sure I'm happy about it's changing, but I think the Palestinians have rightly assessed that Americans are more committed to their ally Israel than they are to the peace process overall. I also happen to think that's a legitimate position for the United States to take, but nevertheless, it leads to certain inevitable conclusions on the part of the Palestinians. And I think what I hate so much is just that I feel that we're locked into the logic of this conflict. And look, there probably is a way out. Someone smarter and more optimistic and more godly than me will see it, and hopefully I can have the sense to support them when they emerge. But to me, just as like a political science geek, the logic of this conflict is frozen and nothing is going to change. And I think there's a couple things contributing to that, and I don't know what to do about any of them. The first is that the Palestinians have come to a conclusion that I think a lot of people's come to, which is we would rather suffer than take a deal that locks us into what we view as permanent subordination. Better, better that we suffer and die for an indeterminate amount of time than that we lock into international law a situation that denies us uh, things that are important to us, you know, whether that's, and like the list of those things changes, you know, whether it's the right of return or what the land exactly is or the viability of their theoretical state. Those details change, but the point is, I think, and again, I think people unfairly describe this as nihilism. It's not nihilism. It's, it's, a way that people prioritize things, and I don't think we can dismiss it as pathological. There are lots of historical examples like this, where people found the terms of peace so untenable that they uh, they chose to not accept, you know, terms for peace that were more favorable to their enemy. They chose to continue fighting despite the fact that you know, the the sort of casualty numbers are always going to be far worse on their side. Um, and, you know, I, I think the only way to describe that is tragic. I think the Israeli perspective is something that I feel very strongly is not well understood in the West at all. I think that from the Israeli perspective, they are a Middle Eastern country they take more measures uh, to limit loss of life than any state near them geographically would. I mean, you you can look at Egypt's behavior towards Hamas and Palestinians in the Sinai if you want uh, a stark example of that. Um, they feel that they are exercising restraint, but they also feel that they are under siege and have been since their creation. I think... The fundamental disconnect here between the West and Israel is that the West has fully internalized, I think at least partially correctly, a sort of origin story that has a lot of guilt in it. 
Like, even if we believe in America, as I do, and think it's a great place, as I do, we know that it was built by slaves, that it was stolen by Indians. I, I do not insist that these are the only relevant facts about America. But the point is, part of our narrative arc is to say, this great thing we have was purchased through murder or theft or, you know, this is... So, like, part of our part of our legacy has to be atonement in some sense, small or large. Like, this was never ours. So the fact that we've taken it and done something great with it does not uh, does not obscure the fact that it that we took it by force from other people. And I think that this dynamic was true in South Africa too. Like. To the extent I understand it, the way the Afrikaners justified their regime is we're better at governance than uh, the native population, not this is our land and it's always been our land. And I think it's important to understand that even if we find it implausible, even if Arabs and Palestinians find it implausible, Israel and Israelis will never view themselves as colonizers. They have a plausible historical narrative connection to the land. Uh... And that connection has been deepened by history. The history of Arab wars against Israel, the history of regional persecution of Jews in all the Arab states, uh, and more broadly, you know, the persecution and murder of Jews across the world for thousands of years. So I guess what I'm saying is one of the reasons that Western European and American and North American states could become more progressive is because part of our historical narrative that became a facet of our identity was acknowledging the crimes we had committed and in some small way building them into the historical narrative and trying to create more just societies. Israel's narrative is that it is the homeland for the Jewish people and the only safe place for Jews. Whatever you think of that narrative, it is a compelling narrative and one with uh, historical evidence that can be brought in to support it. And so I don't think the type of guilt pathology that you can use to move populations in Western societies will work on Israelis. Um, at least not soon. I mean, maybe part of the sort of anti-Israel left's point is like they need to come to terms with this aspect of their identity. But the thing is, I don't think people do that in times of conflict. People do that when they, you know, people are generous when they feel safe and secure. That's when they get interested in sort of servicing their own identity and saying, you know, oops, um we can we can afford to do this great thing um people don't act that way when they feel they're under siege and there's a lot of reason for israel to feel that it's under siege and i think that this is why many of the anti-israel uh movements make no sense and will not have a big impact i mean i think BDS is extremely easy to dismiss as anti-Semitic and marginal for a couple of reasons. One is, I think, frankly, BDS has not been effective at policing anti-Semitism within its ranks. But also, it is similar in many ways, aesthetic and literal, to historical campaigns against the Jews that were anti-Semitic. And what's more, it is sort of like the strategic black hole that all anti-imperial movements are in that it's wrong-headed. This isn't a way to actually, like, you know, private citizen boycott movements against states have never worked. If this one were to, it would be a historical anomaly. Um, you know, some people who participated in the sanctions movement against South Africa will say that the private citizens movement encourage states to take out sanctions against the South African government, but that is not my reading of the history. Um, so yeah, so I just don't see, so what I'm describing is, I think the Palestinians have good reason to continue to risk death 
in the way that they did this week because they understand that their only card to play is to appear to be uh, victimized in more and more horrific terms. And I want to make perfectly clear that I am not calling them nihilists or a death cult or whatever because I think that's what they're doing. I think any population of people in their situation might arrive at a similar strategy and conclusion. I think the Israelis rightly do not see themselves as this safe, uh, luxurious Western society that can afford to, to help people out and stuff. They see themselves as having their existence threatened by all of their neighbors. Uh, and, you know, in Gaza, in the form of this imprisoned population. Uh, and though I don't like what's happening, I understand that worldview as well. And I don't see why any of this would change. And, you know, I think BDS is betting and the Palestinians are betting if we can make the Israel critical coalition broad enough, we can force their hand. And I think, unfortunately... Israel is diversifying its economic and military relationships with a number of states, including Russia, who don't care about the moral character of the conflict and who will deal with Israel no matter how bad things get. Uh, and I think, ironically, you know, I, uh, people who are critical of the left often accuse it of secretly putting the West and the United States at the center of everything. I think the BDS movement is guilty of that. I think people think that if... U.S. military support to Israel ended, the whole nature of the conflict would change. I happen to believe not only is that not the case, but Israel is making plans for the day that that happens, and they will be ready uh, to keep doing what they're doing. So, I look at this, I think my lack, in general, my, my silence on this issue and my lack of public criticism of Israel and all this stuff. I, I know it frustrates some of my friends, and I know it's... But, like, my involvement in Syria, for when I was involved, was very tied to the fact that I thought the U.S. could do something that would save lives. And when I stopped believing that, I left. And in Palestine, I have never felt, during my lifetime, that the United States or private citizens in the United States could do something that would save lives. That is not a good way to think. I am not trying to persuade you to think the way I do. I am just rationalizing my own atheism on that conflict. And I think, unfortunately, um, if we look at Iraq, if we look at Syria, maybe even Libya, though Libya might be different, you can see some of the same bad incentives getting frozen into place. And this is one of the reasons why I think I'm more... I'm more okay with U.S. intervention that, you know, violates international law or, you know, destroys sovereignty or whatever at the beginning of conflicts because it's one of the few things that actually has the ability, if executed correctly, to change underlying dynamics that could freeze a conflict in perpetuity. Like, in Iraq, it's a struggling, developing society with uh, actors that are incentivized to foment sectarian conflict. The demographics are incredibly challenging. And it's just hard to see what would stop the cycles of violence there. Um, again, I'm hoping for it. I, you know, if I go back to working on policy stuff, I will try to engage with all the ideas and see if there are ways to help it, but there seem to be fundamentals of Iraqi society that make it fucked for the foreseeable future. And there's levels of fucked. Like, I don't, you know, I I think in some ways being an Iraqi today is preferable to being uh, a Syrian. There are aspects of the Syrian conflict that are going to be frozen in place. There is a huge, uh, you know, there is a Sunni population that in tandem with some other communities at different points, tried to overthrow a government that everyone hates. And, you know, they sort of, to use, you know, the 
a phrase or something. They went for the king and they missed. And I think one of the reasons it was important to help them and to get regime change when you could is that now this dynamic is frozen in place. You have a society that's mired by violence, that is open to extremist groups, where a huge chunk of the population knows they are viewed as existential enemies by the state, a state that has shown itself capable of great violence in the service of protecting its own survival. I don't know what you do now, because now if you take a shot at the guy, there's less of an opposition ready to step in because it's been allowed to be destroyed. So this, I think that there will be sectarian violence and terrorism between communities in Syria for the foreseeable future. I think those incentives are locked in place, and it would take a massive international investment to provide alternative incentives, and that's not going to happen, nor will it happen in Iraq. And, you know, hopelessness is dumb. Like, there's been so many problems in the world, from Northern Ireland to... Uh, like, overpopulation, like, we don't understand these problems fully, and there are often weird solutions and dynamics that come into play that we can't anticipate, so I am not proselytizing hopelessness here. What I am doing is saying that, like, the creativity of my own brain has never been able to come up with a sensible path, uh for Israel-Palestine, and as a result, I've just stayed silent on it. And I will also say another aspect here, and maybe this is me just being petty, but, like, I do think Americans who are critical of Israel are profoundly stupid about their criticisms and are just projecting, like, for example, I mean, there's so many things to say here, but, like, It would be interesting to compare the rules of engagement and the considerations made for uh, human life that the U.S. used in Raqqa or Mosul versus what Israel uses when in the past it's done bombing raids on uh, Gaza. Now, you can say that Gaza is not actually like a, you know, it is not an armed enemy in the same sense that ISIS is, but clearly that's not how Israel views it. Uh, And also, like, you had a reporter say to the State Department spokesperson yesterday, in saying that Israel has the right to defend itself, are you justifying these killings? Which is sort of like this weird semantic argument, because I think the State Department person should have just said yes. Of course they won't politically, but, like, if you view this act as Israel defending itself, if that's the position you're going to take, that people rushing the border, some with sticks and rocks, many unarmed, but thousands of them, rushing the border, if that constitutes a threat, then the killings are justified. If it didn't, they aren't justified. It would seem that saying Israel has a right to defend itself acknowledges that you agree with the perspective that there was a threat, and then the killings are justified. So I don't know why. Obviously, it's a political minefield, so it makes sense on political terms that the State Department Spocks wouldn't say that. Um, but I think that is the government's position. The U.S. government's position is that the killings were justified. Um, but then the reporter said, we wouldn't do this to people crossing our southern border. And I think this is where, again, we're projecting the logic of our own society onto a very different situation. Mexican immigrants and South and Central American immigrants are almost a uniquely nonviolent and productive foreign population. They come here to work. Everyone knows that. Uh, People argue over how much they contribute to society, and certainly Trump has been trying to push this narrative that I think there's some truth to, that there is also sort of like a, a gang culture moving across the border. But that's, you know, that's distinct from the average immigrant. And I... It's just not the same situation. Like, if if 30,000 Mexicans who were, let's say, I don't know, Zapatistas, they thought the United States was an imperial country, they didn't believe it had the right to exist, they think that the whole Southwest and California 
is rightfully Mexican territory, uh, and their long-term goal was to take that land back. And they massed and held a rally near the border, and then one of them announced, a leader announced, there's a hole in the fence, run into America, we will take back what's ours. The United States would fire upon those people. The population near the border would demand it. If we were facing... And by the way, again, this is not this is not a justification of how Israel handled the problem, but I am just going to say I don't think it's true that we are morally superior to them in our handling of uh like trying to avoid the loss of human life. I think we are comparable in that we avoid loss of life when it's easy, when things are more complicated. Uh, or risky, or things are developing quickly, and we think the safety of our citizens might be an issue, we shoot first and ask questions later, while, you know, also deploying some mitigation strategies, whether that's, you know, rubber bullets or, or gas grenades to disperse people. And I, So, in other words, I think we would have done exactly what the Israelis did if we faced an actually comparable situation, which Mexicans crossing the border one at a time to find jobs is not a comparable situation. But again, so I think in some ways, if Americans want to influence Israel, the first thing they will have to do is get a more sophisticated understanding of how the Israelis view the conflict, how they view their own state's use of violence against Palestinians, and what they view as their own sort of like existential threat matrix and how Israel can survive. I mean, again, another part of the metaphor that doesn't work is just, you know, when's the last time the United States confronted a problem where we thought if our adversary succeeded, we would cease to exist and we'd all be dead or subjugated? I mean, I guess that was part of what animated fears during the Cold War. Um but there were not Russians running across the border. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have productive thoughts on this issue besides, I guess, that one to say that even if you're pro-BDS, even if you're an Israel critic, I think contextualizing Israel in this post-colonial, anti-imperial Worldview that has explained a lot of uh, issues within the West and in terms of the West relationship to the outside world, that is not going to be a successful conceptual matrix for influencing Israeli thought. Though it may be, I mean, clearly it's worked at the UN. Clearly it works to convince European people. Um, so I don't know. I guess it depends who your, your audience is. But you know, it seems to me that convincing those people doesn't get you anywhere. It just increases the degree to which Israelis feel under siege, which is uh, a sense you want to alleviate, I think, to encourage better behavior, not to intensify. Um, but I hope that people out there have more productive, positive view of this than me, and I hope they will share it with me.